My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Mr. Brian Lee. Brian, introduce of the audience and to me. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? What are you doing currently? Yeah, my name is Brian Lee. So, like Michael said, I used to be a professional gamer. I competed in a game called Defense of the Ancients. It's a computer game. I did that for over a decade. Was ranked one, represented the United States internationally, and was ranked seventh in the world around 2013, 2014. So that was the beginning of my career. Eventually was forced to retire from just taking a hand injury from just playing way too much and converted some of my savings into a, a trading account. And so basically took the skills that I learned in professional gaming and brought them over to the trading world. Eventually was able to find my footing and I've been doing that for the past seven, eight years now. So happy to speak with you and answer any questions you have about that. So I know that obviously there's a lot of money as far as these big competitions when it comes to esports. Some people that are maybe older look at that and say, I can't believe that people make money off it. But I've actually seen some pretty incredible dynamics when it comes to esports and the kind of money that can be made. Um, I, I am curious, when you talk about the number of hours that you spent playing and training in that sense, how much of your of your day, of your weeks, of your months were, were dedicated to the 24-7 thing? If you're not sleeping... Even you're eating or taking a shower, or you're thinking about the games. I was responsible for leading the team. So I had an additional layer of responsibility for strategy. And so this is something that I pretty much put at least 12 to 16 hours a day in. And is it, is it similar to other domains in that, you know, the, the, the incremental amount of extra skill you get gets less and less. There's a law of diminishing returns to every hour that you put into it. Yeah, absolutely. You definitely want to put in, I don't know if I believe in this necessarily, but you want to put in your 10,000 hours minimum. And then eventually it becomes way more strategy than, let's say, reaction speed. And just going back to the prize pools, just to let you guys know how competitive the game was. In 2012, 2013, I was competing for about a million to $3 million. And in 2021, the most recent prize pool for what is considered the Super Bowl of esports called the International, the prize pool was $40 million. So this is like a very big deal. Okay, so you did that, you had the injury, then you say to yourself, well, I want to do something else. I think the difference between gaming and markets is one has less less of a of luck component, whereas the other has more luck. And I think when you can go wrong with this. When you think about gaming, there are rules, there's algorithms, you can strategize, there's a clearer link between your strategy, winning the game, and your effort. In trading, that's not necessarily the case, right? Because it's hard to really know how much of your profit is from your skill versus just randomness or outright luck. If you if you believe in that the way that I do, how did you think through being successful in that domain on the esports side to being successful as a trader? You're correct. Normally, that is the case for me. I'm a pretty systematic guy. So when I put pen to paper, my ideas, I definitely want to back test it out and make sure that while I'm inside the market, I'm going to be just pressing the buttons, um, like kind of the monkey pushing the buttons rather than making the intuitive decisions at the moment. While there is some discretion with my process, more or less, the way I value myself is in two fronts. So of course, there's a lot of variance. In trading, there, there's definitely a lot of variance in gaming as well. So I'm definitely not a stranger to this. But in terms of variance, like obviously, you're not going to win every time. There is a probability component to it. But as long as you understand the foundational aspect of risk reward and win rate, then you can understand, hey, I can be profitable with a less than stellar win rate. So personally, I have about 
30 to 40% win rate on a good month. And because my average winner is about three to six times my loser, then that math helps me understand like, hey, it's not about winning every single time. It's just about playing as many hands as you can with edge. And for me, that's where I found my place with variance. And then the second thing is because I am systematic, I view this more of like a performance sport. So in a similar way to gaming or just any other sports in general, like golf or whatever, what you have you, basically I'm looking at this like once I'm in the market and I already have my plans, my strategies laid out, how closely can I get to my black and white signals? How closely can I get to where I intend to enter on paper and same things for the exit and with my risk? Um, these factors, including position sizing and having really top-notch risk management, I believe that I'm taking control of whatever that I can in an environment that's completely random. So that is, um, in essence, what I'm doing. Arguably, there are certain parts of the marketplace where you're more likely to have an edge than others, right? So it it's one of the arguments for a long time has been that you really can't get an edge from trading large cap stocks if you believe in market efficiency, smaller cap, micro cap stocks, there's more edge because there's less analyst coverage. So there might be more inefficiencies there. Um, talk about where you tend to trade because I think that's a big part that's often missed is where is the edge sharpest? Sure, yes. I grew up trading small caps. I'm still trading small caps as we speak. To the short side, I understand that you're not a big fan of it, but essentially we have these stocks that typically are, you know, 20, 40, 50, 100% pretty much uh, several times a week, if not dozens of times. And that automatically puts these stocks in a criteria or they put them in the mean reversion umbrella is what I like to call it. Basically stocks that are getting extended on either news, PRs, et cetera. And the edge within this niche is essentially that these companies, number one, can't be traded by large institutional owners because they have limited liquidity. Number two, oftentimes are uh, introducing supply in order to keep the lights on. And they have to disclose any material changes with their uh, supply dilution share structure through the SEC. And if you understand how to read filings and you have the ability to basically have some sort of thesis or some sort of agenda when you go into each trade. And with that, you can basically let price action verify your thesis. So even though you have all those components stacked um, in your favor, you still have to basically understand it's still a probability. So between that, that's just a very low level kind of process there, but that should give you a good idea of what I'm trading. Okay. And, and when you say on the smaller cap side, are we talking more, you know, small, smaller or micro cap or kind of on the upper end of that range? I would say the micro, it's anything between, for me, is about like these cents to 15 or $20. Occasionally they'll rip up and go into the $50, $100 space. And, and also occasionally stocks that are mid or large cap will exhibit behavior similar to small cap stocks, similar, like AMC or GameStop. The ones that just went absolutely crazy. But in a sense, like they are the lower market cap stocks. I would not, I'm not going to trade like OTC, for example, but anything listed on NASDAQ is totally cool. And within this price parameter, is it, is it fair to say that there's less algorithmic manipulation is not the right word, but just less interference by algos that are just automatically buying or selling when you're talking about? smaller, less liquid names that makes them their price action more based on human 
triggers? I, I'm trying to get to the question of the the reaction time of that pricing. Is it is it automated? Like we're seeing with a lot of these large gap names, or or not so much? I definitely think there is an algorithmic presence. Definitely a lot of market making going on and picking the other side of the crowd. But the thing is, in terms of large gaps, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say this is my best guess that you want to ride the momentum or the wave of the larger players, right? In the small cap space, the same thing, but just to the opposite side. So the larger players typically are on the sell side. So if you can basically get on the short side and ride the momentum like of the selling pressure that they're constantly introducing into these low-quality stocks in order to keep them afloat with, through dilution, then you have an overwhelming force towards the downside, especially considering the fact that they're up 50, 100, 200% um, on a regular basis without any proper kind of material news of any sort. So like, even with the presence of algorithms or things like that, unless the trade absolutely has no like larger um, force pushing them down, then it's not really going to make that big of a difference, to be honest. Okay, so now this has been an interesting year to think about shorting small smaller cap type names because it's been a very bifurcated market, right? If small caps other than the last 48 hours really haven't done all that much and they're still largely in a kind of sideways trading range. Talk about environments where that approach of shorting kind of really does the small, smaller cap names have popped in a very aggressive way. Environments where that tends to be uh, more favorable for your approach versus not. What, what, what tends to be a, a tailwind for that way of thinking about trading? Well, to be honest, um, despite, let's say, any of the larger ETFs, around small caps being inactive or even just biotechs being down for the year, et cetera. Uh, small caps still, for the most part, are a daily consistent occurrence uh, because there are constantly stocks that you stay gapping up and putting in like pretty good range and pretty good volume. So as far as like growing a small account, you have a, you have the benefit of having this large frequency of setups. I would say the only times it really, and this is probably why you're noticing that, the only times it really gets quite slow is during the earnings seasons when a lot of the bigger names take a lot of the, the stage, as well as in 2022 when the when the interest rates started going up and the war in Ukraine started to happen, a lot of uncertainty overall. So less money in the market. That was another like kind of stale period. But ever since I've been doing this, that those are the only two times where things really get extremely slow. So if you're just basically looking for single stocks that are gapping up and putting in pretty good ranges, then you're, you're more than likely going to have at least one or two setups um, per day. So this is the benefit of training these. But, but there's always, of course, the issue of you know, availability to short, right? So you might have the setups being frequent, but you know, maybe there's just no, no ability to actually short them. That's true, but there are a lot of specialty brokers these days. Like Before, it used to be much more difficult, but these days, it's extremely competitive. Um, if you really wanted to do this, you'd be able to find it pretty easily. The availabilities there, I have not, I have basically can trade about 99% of what I see. So it's not been a problem at all. Okay. Now, when you're, when you're identifying a setup, something that has gone up, are you, are you trying to factor in? Is there a reason for it to have gone up as much as it does? Does this sort of the reasoning factor into whether you want to actually take the trade or not? Yeah, absolutely. So I put it into a pretty basic formula. And basically what it is, is I call it four pillars. So we're going to analyze it on the first pillar, which is the technical side. So we're just looking purely at the charts, the intraday, the daily. We're trying to see the macro 
kind of trend, right? And then on the fundamental side, so that's looking at the actual statistics behind the company, understanding if it's a good company, not backed by legit investors, et cetera. Um, looking at the filings, trying to figure out whether or not the company has any supply or if they're cash rich. That makes a very big difference in these situations. The third would be news. So understanding like, is this a material news? Is this something that fundamentally changes this stock and maybe prices it a bit higher? Or is it something that's recycled, something that is meant to gain hype and something that is most likely paid out and written just to attract more investors in that moment? And then the fourth one for me would be cycle. So these small cap stocks are extremely cyclical. They go, they bounce between extremely bullish and extremely bearish, fairly rarely in between a neutral state. And so by knowing essentially which side is happening to make the most money, you start to gauge the emotions of the traders involved. And that way you can anticipate, let's say, if short sellers are extremely aggressive, they are constantly winning, then you would expect a really ex- extreme, exaggerated squeeze of some sort. And that kind of emboldens bulls to go long and be aggressive and try to compound the risk. And eventually they get caught because of the nature of small caps. Probably primarily, I would say 70, 80% of them are going to be biased inherently to short side. So when gravity comes back in and the emotions and the bubbles start bursting, then that's where we flip to the other side. But this is consistently happening here. Like, month after month, over and over again. How long do you keep a trade on? Is it, if you're trying to feed these, these pops, right, by shorting them, presumably you also have to be pretty quick in terms of covering. Typically, I close out by the end of a day. Occasionally, we'll bring it over one or two more days, but it's my average trade time is a couple hours, so it's not particularly scalping, but I would call it more like position trading intraday. Do you, uh, do you look at the option side at all? When it comes to doing some decisions like that intraday? I don't. These companies often don't have any option chains. Yeah, so. the depth's not going to be there, right? Sure. Yeah. But did you look at it, as you say, in general? I do think, and there's a lot of interesting studies around how zero DTE seems to have caused different ways that the market opens and closes compared to pre-all this kind of manic volume on the option side. Right. As far as I'm aware, it's not making any impact right now. But if it did, then I would learn. Yeah. And as far as zero DTA, that's, that's interesting. Um, mostly on the equity side. All right. Let, let's talk about uh, risk management. The reason I'm very anti-shorting, at least from a more than a single day perspective is, as you know, right, the, the risk of loss is unlimited, right? Because something keeps yes. on going up, but, but you're, you know, what you make is, is zero. And if you, I think most people think about shorting and, and think of it in terms of an outright directional bet on the market. So if you're bearish, that means you have to short. Now let's go back to Shorting over time from at least a quant backtest perspective doesn't work on the broader market or asset classes, largely because y- you can be right about being bearish, but wrong on exactly when it happens, right? And that's why it tends to be a losing game over time. How do you manage risk? I, I know time management is a part of risk management. I get that. But yeah, I'm going to assume that you've had a couple of short trades that you, know, you shorted it and then yeah, it just blows out suddenly and goes even higher, right? Rather than Yeah, definitely. Risk management is extremely important to me because of what you said. And yes, I have blown out, but this was as I was learning like back in 2017. So that was probably the first and last major big blow up I had because I, I really didn't understand risk management at all. 
following that, I think I made a lot of really good positive changes that kept me off trouble. So essentially, like the amount of risk I'm willing to put on trade is just the equivalent of some percentage of my account. And I use the R kind of mentality. So that's like Van Tharp, if you're familiar. And essentially treating each trade as like, hey, here's my, here's my stock. Here's where they enter. And my position size is the, the difference. So the risk per share to, and my, and so my dollar risk divided by the risk per share. That's my position sizing. It's usually not going to be an aggressive percentage. So like one or 2% for me, I think is pretty good and never really more than 4%. In doing so, I basically map out my risk of ruin. And so let's say if you risk 1% per trade, then you should have about a hundred theoretical losses in a row, like with that position size. So it'd have to go a hundred times against me in order to do a full blow up there. Obviously, you don't want to go down a hundred. Even at 50%, you'd have to make 100% back, right? So that, but even then, that is extremely unlikely. So essentially with that in mind, you understand like in terms of R multiples, like probably the worst thing that's happened to me would be like a minus 10. And that was like an ultra rare scenario that happened two years ago, minus 10 um, times my risk. Um, however, like on average, if I'm going to get slipped, it's usually one to three additional risk units which is not something that's uh, difficult to recover, basically because my average wins about three or four times uh, my my loser. So by capping your risk out at that 1R, consistently taking that average loss around that same level, um, effectively, like anytime something outlier happens, your reward side is meant to take the reins there and make it recoverable. So typically, like, I use a couple different tools. So the first one will be broker assisted max losses. So each and every single day, I'm doing a calculation based on my average statistics. So essentially, if I have an average win of, let's say, three to one, right? And my average loss is this one R, then I want to lose no more than three times on one particular position. So that would be minus three R. That's at the worst case. Like, Usually I put it around minus two. So in that case, I typically never draw down more than I can possibly recover in the next trade. And by equalizing the risk in this fashion, even in outlier situations, it's always recoverable within a relatively good time frame. Either it's a day or if it's an extreme scenario, it might take two or three days of winning. The other aspect of this that I really hone in on is treating trading like a business. So my, while I said your risk of ruin would be about 100 losses, and so in fact, it's actually a lot more because you'd be compounding down, let's say the following day, if you took a loss, you'd be taking a percent or two of that account as it's drawn down. So you'd be risking a lot less. That that actually extends the runway a lot more, but 100 is a lot more easy to understand. Uh, but what I was getting at is I'm consistently wiring out of my accounts, not like Hey, I'm going to just wire out every single week because it's Friday, but more so in a very structured way, which I can get into if we want. But basically like over 90% of the profit that I've made in the markets over the past couple of years, I have put into the bank and that has not really slowed my growth at all, but it has guaranteed that effectively my risk of ruin in terms of net worth has been separated from the market. So the account itself is its own entity. And in fact, like when you scale it across um, my net worth in general, the risk of ruin actually goes down almost to 
I don't want to say impossible, but mathematically speaking, it's you're, you're nowhere close because you're not even risking a percentage of your net worth. It would be something like very small, point zero two percent, point one percent, things like that. And so, because of this, able to stay in the game as as long as you're able to maintain your performance at a high level. And so that's my goal is just the longevity and being able to keep executing on edge, taking profits out and not risking more network than I need to. I think the temptation though would be if you're going through a drawdown despite that sort of withdrawal process, you're going to want to then replenish, right? So you contribute to so withdraw. How do you balance that out? Because I, I got to assume there's there are times when you say to yourself, okay, well, I'm going through a, a, a rough patch here, a rough streak. I need more capital to play with to... We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. To come out of it. I would, I had never, I made a pact a long time ago that I will, I will never replenish. I'll never wire back in. The way I treat, the way I treat it is like, okay, well, if I'm going to pull money out of this trading like a business, then I'm just going to pull out less money because like if I was a better trader, then I would be, I wouldn't necessarily be in the situation. Or perhaps there's a lesson to learn here. I actually, I cherish them in hindsight, not as I'm living through the experience, but essentially like every single time that I've drawn down in the past and have had to use lesser size and compounded back, those have been very impactful in terms of learning lessons or bringing in new systems to make sure that doesn't happen in the future. And those kind of improvements are only prompted by the feeling that your back's against the wall. And because I refuse to put any money back in, then basically just living and dying by the account. And I assume that, look, I'm just going to work my way out of this because in terms of the compounding process, if you get the ball rolling, it's not really going to take you very long to recover. It's just a matter of like, can you maintain a high level of consistency and performance and really focus on the process rather than try to make a little bit more. Like in, in my experience, this has pretty much shattered like all the goals I've set for myself by being able to withstand those moments. And sometimes the market is basically telling you something. It might be saying, look, your strategy is not working at the moment, or you may be caught in the wrong cycle of things, or your process is not as tight as it should be. And so when you go into drawdowns, you basically should be listening for those signs and starting to think about ways to fight out of that and work your way out of that, work through those problems rather than basically cheating your way back to normal. So for me, like once it's out of the account, that's it's going somewhere else, whether it's going to invest in some kind of fund or some different property or set aside for expenses, et cetera. Like this is not, I'm trading as trading, trading as a business. It's not something that I'm going to just consistently replenish and back, bail myself out. And on the retail side, especially if you get in the mindset that someone can bail you out, which no one will bail you out, then you have no idea what it takes to trade retail because you eat what you kill and you absolutely have to understand like what it takes to survive. And it's really not about the money. Essentially, like if you have a good process, the money will follow. And I've 
I don't really have to worry about necessarily. So like I am willing to sit in whatever drawdown I'm in for as long as it takes until I get the skills to get out of that because my goals are a little bit higher than making a little bit of money today. I want to make a lot more money in the future and I want to be consistent. I, I, I got to assume, maybe I'm wrong, but I got to assume that you do play occasionally long. So you're just not doing shorting. Well, there's a massive opportunity to be long in, in the small cap space. But again, like in terms of performance, I feel like my longs are not as good, Ma- mainly because where I would be taking the short and being interested in the short is where if I flipped my bias, it's the worst time to be long. Like you wouldn't want to necessarily long every single breakout, right? Because if you're, if you're long at the tops, you probably are the, you're probably going to be the short term top at the very least and have a really hard time with the risk reward component. So in terms of like anticipating the short, that is a little bit more tricky just because you have no idea basically how far the momentum can carry you that day. And so in terms of longing, that's a whole nother dimension that I would love to learn and plan on learning. However, like, again, like I don't want to, I don't want to swim upstream. The small cap market is basically primarily short sided for a reason. The edge exists there and you can essentially verify that through statistics. If that's the way your mind thinks, but on average, somewhere between three out of four stocks is are going to end red on the day. So if you're consistently looking for that long, you're going to have a lot of heartache. So I would say that it's a, a semi-cyclical. Like you're going to have to rely a lot on different momentum cycles. You're going to rely on hype. And you're also going to know how to pick your spots in something that's extremely volatile. But the risk reward is there. So when you do win, you can even have a worse win rate than I do. Like you could even have like 10, 15, 20% because the upside is very big. Do you think it takes a certain kind of mentality or maybe personality to be a successful short trader? I think a lot of people would think naturally that if you're, if you're predisposed to shorting, maybe you're just naturally more negative. May not be true, right? But I am curious how you think about how one's personality trait makes them more likely to want to short. I honestly think that no one comes into trading with the right mindset and right attitude about things or the psychological makeup. I think you have to mold yourself around what works. Like if you identify an edge, the edge is not going to change itself because of your personality. I think you can change yourself to accept the edge. So when I started and what a lot of people do when they start, or introduce this niche, and they say, okay, I'm going to take the long side because first of all, I don't have to find locate inventory like you mentioned. It's a little bit simpler to understand and that longing is just something that we all know how to do. But when you actually really understand and dig into this and get your ass kicked a couple of times through the price action, how difficult it is to trade in terms of volatility, then you start to recognize like, hey, there is that overarching bias. Maybe I am fighting against gravity. And for for that reason, like even from practicing and trying to go on the long side initially, I recognize like, look, I need to actually just there are traders here who are role models who have done it successfully on the short side for the most part. And there has to be a reason for this. So in identifying that, like changing the way that I approach trading was more beneficial to me than just forcing my get forcing myself to long over and over again when like again like that bias exists. So I think that you hundred percent can 
I don't even know if it's a personality thing. I think it's just, uh, the way I see it is just pure objective. There is a not right way, but like there's a extremely efficient way to trade these. So I would rather be on that side than getting frustrated for no reason. So what, how you went about finding your style and your approach? And it's not like you retired from the esports side and said, you know what, I'm going to be this really good short seller. Presumably you had to figure out what your your approach would be. Talk about that journey and, and maybe some of the things that you looked at to self-educate. Sure. So the, obviously, the first thing you do when you try to get into trading somewhat seriously is you're going to hop on YouTube or Google and you're going to search like how to make money trading, right? And the first thing that popped up for me is someone who is probably six degrees away from each individual is like a person named Tim Sykes. And he basically ran like viral marketing campaigns and put a lot of sponsor posts in and like huge YouTube videos, things like that. And I was just immediately sucked into the small cap world, not because it's what I wanted to do, but essentially it's what I kept seeing repeatedly. And I kept seeing like, hey, this guy's doing it, this guy's doing it, and they're sharing how they're doing it. So in, in that way, it dragged me in. I practiced it. I tried to trade it as seriously as possible on the paper trade side so that I could bring it after a year into the market and essentially recognize like, because I was practicing long that I had to scrap all of it once maybe a month or two went by and like it was not going to plan because of course there's a big difference between paper trading and live trading and just the pure stubbornness, whether I landed on, let's say futures or options or whatever, the fact that like there was a challenge needed so that I wanted to overcome it. And so I was not willing to leave the space I got my asking basically. So I just, I attuned myself to the small cap world. And I learned like through this process, like, hey, there's these people who are doing this, these people are doing this. You start connecting, networking on social media, start figuring out like, who do you want to aspire to be and try to mimic them as much as possible. That way I was able to combine like different tools that I was learning and eventually come to my own philosophy about the trading. But that was definitely, what was definitely pivotal in this was finding some Twitter accounts. Like the one I have to shout out no matter what is called at Team 3D Stocks. He's like the godfather. Many successful traders, like even traders who have gone to make nine figures. Like he literally spawned a village of traders who are amazing. And I think that just literally finding one or two people that you can just straight up study them like a textbook, start to finish, go back 2014 tweets, read every single one of them. Like that was more invaluable to my education than let's say watching YouTube videos or podcasts or being spread out, spreading your knowledge base amongst like several dozen accounts. It was really just those high quality, very impactful feeds that you stumble across here and there that makes all the difference. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I think one of the interesting aspects of trading, of course, is you get that that dopamine hit, right? When you put an order through and it starts to work right away. Do you find that that trading has 
similar elements of excitement like what you were doing on the esports side. Obviously, you're not doing it 24-7 unless you're doing cryptocurrencies maybe, but maybe just some talk about some of the sort of similarities and differences in terms of what you feel trading versus what you felt when you were doing the professional uh, gaming. Oh, 100%. You definitely, you definitely get the same feelings. You get the same kind of rush. However, like obviously in gaming, well, not obviously, but it was a team game. And so you have this camaraderie aspect that missing and trading, trading on your own. But like in terms of feeling this freedom in your day-to-day life, in terms of like, I can do, I can be at home, I can work here on my computer and I can do something that basically has an unlimited ceiling in terms of potential like that. That is extremely motivating. It's very, it's a very competitive feeling. Like you want to, whether or not most traders recognize this or want or willing to admit it, like definitely brought an ego into trading and wanted to prove myself and validate like, okay, well, when I was playing on a team, it's very difficult because one person can sink the ship. But in terms of trading, you're your own team. So if you feel like you're a highly capable individual, you demonstrated like you understand how to think strategically, then all of the dopamine, in my opinion, and I've definitely tried to shave it off. Like I'm very, I'm not emotionally reactive as much to the trading in general because I don't want to be affected by that. So I've done work towards this. However, like I understand that's a lot of dopamine. But like the, the main pleasure or like dopamine component to this is like, Executing a strategy. So when you can put like an idea into a system and see that work and consistently work and be successful at this, like that's an intellectual stimulation that I really enjoy. And the second thing is that I personally don't set like goals necessarily. I wouldn't be like, oh, I want to make $10 million. I'd be more like, what what are the things I need to do every single day to make $10 million? So it's going back to Atomic Habits by James Clear really focusing on like the process of making money rather than like what just making money itself. And so by focusing on just those little improvements day by day and also backtesting strategies, putting them live and seeing them shine or just making corrections, like to me, that's really where the most enjoyment came from. And I did mention like in the um, gaming world, I was in terms of in charge of strategy. So for me also this in the same respect, like I really loved being able to like design something that was going to be successful and seeing it play out the way that I planned. So that's what I really enjoy about trading in general. I'm curious, have you ever thought about venturing further and maybe either doing a hedge fund or some other kind of vehicle to manage other people's money? Well, I, per- I personally feel like as an individual, I would be able, I would get to the point where essentially like there's no, there's no difference whether you have at some point or make a couple million dollars. It, it's not really going to make that big of a difference in terms of the way that you perceive life. I don't want to necessarily assume more responsibilities. So for some people, that's their thing. But in terms of myself, like I want to be trading nine-figure um, level. So at that point, like I really don't see a benefit to managing other people's money besides adding more additional stress. Because the thing is, like as someone, what well, someone, but like I have achieve like really high rankings in the game I played. And I recognize like the tool of success is that you're sacrificing something. So when I see people win championships, I don't think like the first thing I think of like, what did you sacrifice to get there? Did you sacrifice relationships, health, whatever it would be? Obviously, like I have a physical um, reminder in my hand. So yeah, assuming more responsibility for me is not really part of the plan. I definitely want to just be able to like, I think 
the process of becoming a high level trader inherently makes your life a little less stressful in the sense that like most nine figure traders that I know personally are taking trades very seldomly. Like it's all about patience and finding the right opportunities rather than like scrambling day to day. I got to trade, I got to trade, I got to trade. Like I think in pursuing this path, I'll be able to live a better life in general. So like buying back my time is the goal and I don't want to assimilate more stress. Not to get, you know, too deep into it, but, but, you know, it sounds like obviously that was a, a very difficult uh, moment for you, right? When you had the injury, you identified yourself as this top performing East Force player. It takes a certain amount of grit to say, you know what? Okay. I may not be able to do what I used to do at a high level, but I'm going to apply my, my hunger to other domains and be successful in other ways. Maybe just talk about the, just that, that sort of transition for you mentally right? to go through the injury to then think about, well, what are you going to do now? Yeah. Well, that, that was one. There were, there were several factors that went into it. Definitely recognizing like through the injury, like, yeah, I can't practice as much as I want to. I'm probably not going to be able to perform at the level that I need to be. That was one thing that I definitely recognize. But in terms of the game itself, the average age of professional esports athlete is around like 18 years old. So the emotional maturity side is not there. When I started, we were pretty much at the, we were at the, I don't know, I don't know what to call it, at the, at the very, we were setting the pace. Like we were the ones at the very beginning. And the prize pools back then was like playing for pizza, playing for like a couple hundred dollars. Like it was nothing serious. So as I started to mature into the esports um, scene and as it was starting to like bloom, like the, the opportunities were not really necessarily there. Like there was no like 40 million prize pool for me to compete for. So in that respect, like, only the top 1% of 1% will make a living. But even if you're literally like the best, top 50 player in the world, you're not guaranteed to make, be able to make a living. You have to be literally the top five. So in that regard, like, and with the emotional maturity of your teammates, it's extremely easy to get derailed and frustrated by just like oh, these random arguments, these random like infighting, or just people not putting as much effort. So we oftentimes do these things called boot camps where you would move into a house for a couple months, sometimes a month, at minimum and like literally just train all day long with your teammates. And there's plenty of times where like for big tournaments, talking like $3 million tournament that we're trying to qualify for that after all the practice sessions, we're going 10 hours of practice. Then as the leader, I'm responsible for the strategy. I'm plugging into the Excel. Like I'm really gathering the data on the opponents and trying to figure out the plans for tomorrow. And what is my teammates doing? My teammates are watching anime on the TV. So like you have these kinds of situations. You have situations where players like literally shut, shut down, throw tantrums or like just refuse to cooperate. And these can happen in like really high pressure situations. So more than one occasion, I've just not been able to like really perform as a unit because of these individuals. And obviously as a leader, I will take responsibility for anything and everything that happens. But like at some point you have to recognize like this is what it is. So that, that frustration has been boiling for a little bit. And not only this, but the United States in terms of representation in use force at the time, we, we were the worst region by far. Like you would not expect a United States team to even place like in the top 12. That was not really realistic. It was more of a let's place last. So the, um, the talent pool that you could select from was not also there. So what I had to do was I had to gather, I had to convince people to play with no salary to wake up four or five a.m. in the morning to compete against Europeans in a game that's extremely competitive and fast paced with a two second delay on every action you make. And if, when each game takes an hour and you're, you're delayed out of your mind, it does make you a better player, sure. But like, 
the amount of the amount of sacrifice you have to make in order to succeed at something like this was really intense. So, like just from a pure lifestyle and the stress aspect of it, like it was not that difficult of a choice for me to be like, hey, look, I am putting so much into this. It's not really panning out the way that I want. Like I, I, I really felt like at some point I was wanting to be top three in the world, basically. But I got as far as seventh, which is okay. But everyone plays to win championship. They don't play to get second place. Like no one cares about second place. So essentially, like with that in mind, the frustration boils up. I decided, like, wait, there's no lateral movement for me in esports. Like at best, you can become like a manager, team owner, co-caster, content creator, right? But I wanted something a little more potential. And trading's kind of been my exit plan from the beginning. Like once I make enough money in gaming, like there's not, you're going to have to retire somewhere around 30. And so I figured by that point, I would have a lot, some money from gaming to invest and would take that to the next level. So it just happened a bit sooner than I wanted. But that decision was already laid out like long term, long in advance. So it was easy to accept. It was just a matter of how do I start something different and recognizing like, look, I already did something where the, the statistics of being a competitive gamer at the world stage is about as good, like it's probably worse than being a successful trader, to be honest. So I figured like it's possible to do this if you can apply the same kind of strategy systems mindsets. And I think it, it was so. Brian, for those who want to attract more of your thoughts, your work, your research, where would you point them to? It's all, I would all just go to Twitter, X at Brian Lee Trades. There I have the, I have a pin post where I try to put all of the need to know things there, but there's some, there's so much. Like I, I built this feed that have a lot of gold nuggets, but there's like a starter pack there with like all free contents, interviews, blogs, uh, detailing this journey in more detail and my risk management philosophy, everything. So if you go there, you got to find everything you need. Everybody, please make sure you follow Brian. Again, I'll have this as an edited podcast. It's probably in a couple of days here. And hopefully I'll see you all later in the week. I've got John Molden coming up tomorrow. So stay tuned for that. Brian, real pleasure meeting with you. And I appreciate your time here. All right. Thanks for having me, Michael. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.